It's interesting to give a talk like this because I, I think of it as one that doesn't immediately sound like a, it has a lot of appeal, though a, a number of you did come tonight, so I guess you're interested in, in the subject. Um, so in Buddhist psychology, there's three kinds of conceit. We tend to think of conceit as just feeling better than um, other folks, but in Buddhist psychology, it's, it's really any measuring or comparing ourselves with others. And it's generally said it takes the three forms of feeling better than, or worse than, or equal to. And I think the reason why it's, um, it's considered an afflictive, um, uh, unhelpful, or um, unwholesome, uh, I don't know, we wouldn't really call it a feeling, but a, a, an event <laughs> in the mind and heart. And um, the reason why is because you can see that it creates such a strong sense of self. So um, there's a lot of delusion in it. There's a lot of delusion in um, not seeing impermanence and in um, assuming that, that we're independent and separate from people. So there's a lot of that in there. So it arises when we strongly identify with some experience of mind and body and we take it to be me, mine, permanent, and we make a whole story about ourselves from that one um, trait or one um, experience of mind or body. So for example, when I was uh, young in my family, um, well, part of my family anyway, being intelligent was considered a good thing. And um, so I was pretty good in school, and so I was considered to be pretty smart, and I decided that being smart was like one of the most important things. It's kind of convenient because when we have this superiority conceit, it's kind of convenient that the things that we think are most valuable are the things that we have. <laughs> it's convenient for us. <laughs> um, and so I was kind of steeped in this and that, like that maybe I was better than people because I was smart, right? And it took until I got like out of my family and in my early 20s till it started considered to me like, you know, that might not actually be the most important quality a person could have. Like maybe kindness might, you know, be like more important. So we take something like that. I was working on this talk the other day, and um, I got this letter from my insurance company for my car and renewing my insurance, and it said that I was a perfect driver. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so it was so funny because I was thinking about this talk and watching it, and I saw myself get, like, a little puffed up. <laughs> like, you know, like I'm a better driver than all these other people. <laughs> um, so that's, that's mana, that's identifying right with some temporary status because it only takes one accident and then you're no longer on the, on the perfect driver list, right? You've been bumped down. This is like such, this measuring ourselves against others is a very, very deep pattern um, in all of us. When Buddhism talks about... Uh, Enlighten, or Theravada Buddhism, they talk about enlightenment, that there's four stages of enlightenment, and that at each stage of enlightenment, different fetters, as they're called, fall away, different ways that the heart and mind are bound fall away. This one goes last. That's how strong it is. That's how deep it is. So 
perhaps we shouldn't try to figure out how to get rid of it. We should probably figure out how to have a relationship with it because it's probably going to be around for a while. So how to relate to it? How do we relate to it so it doesn't cause further bondage of heart and mind? And um, of course, mindfulness is going to be key, being aware of it when it arises, and I'll talk more later. I think one of the reasons why this is such a strong pattern of conditioning for us is that I think it has a very strong evolutionary function. And um, we're basically tribe animals. Or I just came from teaching the young adult retreat at IMS, and there's a number of people here from that retreat. Hello. <laughs> it's very um, sweet to, to see people like afterwards. It was a great retreat. But my um, co-teacher, Jesse, Jesse Vega, he was giving this Dharma talk. He, He's so funny sometimes. I don't know if I can convey how he said this, but he was like talking about how slow kind of us humans are in learning. And he's like, look, you guys, we're just one step up from apes. Like, we're just glorified animals. Have some respect for evolution. (laughs) The way he said that, have some respect for evolution. He was like, you know, it takes a long time. And um, I think of this conditioning, it is so deeply evolutionarily based, of course it takes a long time for it to change. And the way it's evolutionarily based is that we're tribe animals, right? And in the tribe, you want to figure out where your place is, basically, so that you can get enough to eat, get yourself a mate, and survive, live. Pass on your genes, you could say, too. And so this, like, measuring, you know, am I better than, worse than, equal to, like, it's all about, like, where I fit in the um, tribe. But it's so deep because it's all about am I going to survive? It's like that deep. And as early humans, when we were in tribes, or when we had, you know, that's how we lived, it was like if you got kicked out of the tribe, you died. It wasn't a small thing. Now we have this illusion that we're kind of independent, and, well, we could talk about that, but if you got kicked out of the tribe, you died. So, was, so this was really important, like, to know how you fit in. So you want to, this comparing, it's part of it. It's like we want to make sure that our behavior is at least acceptable enough to be included in the tribe and hopefully like more than acceptable, like, like, like successful enough that we're going to get the goodies. So I want to talk a little bit about the different kinds of um, conceit. We'll use the Buddhist framework, but there may be a little um, Western psychology uh, coming in there, too, because it uh, can help us sort of understand and relate to it. So the first one is um, uh, superiority conceit. So that sense that um, we think that we're better than others for like one of these reasons that we might pull out of the hat. And we might notice that... Um, Notice this in judging others, like, oh, they do that, I don't, I'm better. <laughs> or um, maybe some trait like our intelligence, like I said, or our looks, or something we have, or where we live, or um, what country we're from. Or um, There's many, many different ways that we might identify as being better than. And what we do then is we create these whole stories that are about ourselves. And then what we can see is that when superiority conceit is 
operating, we, um, we feel a strong sense of self and we feel separation from others. So that's why it's such a, um, it's a suffering state of mind because of that. There's a shielding of the heart. There's a protection in that kind of like I'm better than feeling. We can even see this kind of conditioning on a meditation retreat where um, sometimes yogis will get into competitions. I don't know if it happens that much off a retreat in the hall, but like, you know, who sits longer, who sits stiller, uh, um, who gets up earlier, who uh, stays up later. Like yogis will come in to report to us in the interviews like, you know, like, um, wow, there's this other person, you know, sometimes I get to the hall earlier than them, and sometimes they get to the hall earlier than me, and, like, I want to be the first one in the hall um, because then I'm better than, right? So stay up later, eat less. In my early um, yogi years, uh, early meditation years, I really wanted to be super yogi. That was, like, I really wanted to do everything right and everything good. And um, I, I, was, I did judge other yogis, so I'll admit it. And um, then many years later, and in one retreat, basically my teacher told me to be a bad yogi, a quote-unquote bad yogi. She told me, like, to... I was only allowed to sit one time a day, and then I had to kind of, like, walk around the rest of the day. <laughs> she did allow me to do something she called useless gazing. I could sit at a window and look out and, have, and drink some tea. That was allowed. But useless gazing, right? So, like, all my ideas about being super yogi and, like, such a good yogi, it was horrible. (laughs) I suffered so much (laughs) for about 10 days. Then it was, like, great. Because then it's like I let go of being super yogi, right? I let go of that that pressure of, of being, you know, so good. And then I had a lovely time. I thought it was kind of my karma because I, I had to do everything that I judged other yogis for doing. <laughs> sometimes what we find is that when we judge others so we're feeling better and they're worse, then um, sometimes we're projecting parts of ourselves that we don't like, on, that we don't, can't accept onto them. So, um, so I would judge yogis for like having lots of tea or taking breaks or doing stuff like that. And what I started to see later was that I judged them for that because I actually wanted to be like that. I wanted to be laid back. And you can tell, like, when that judgment has that in it because it'll have this edge to it. It'll be like, they do that. <laughs> and um, that's a sign that, like, there's something probably um, within yourself that either wants to be like that or is like that and can't handle that, that we're like that. So we can learn a lot by our judgments of others about what's going on inside. It's really helpful in um, intimate relationships where we do this all the time. I mean, just like look at what you hate about your partner or your parents or your kids. We're not allowed to say we hate our kids, but but what you <laughs> but what you might you know a trait you might hate or a good friend like a trait you might hate. It's like you'll swear it has nothing to do to you, nothing to do with you, right? Like I I did. The, I remember one specific thing with my partner. Like it just 
drove me nuts, this certain trait he had. And I swore it had nothing to do with me. Like, I was so not that. And, um, you know, then one day, it kind of <laughs> seeped into my little consciousness. He was like, oh, my God, I, like, have that conditioning way deep down inside, and I, I couldn't look at it. So I had to hate it in him. I'm not going to tell you the details. <laughs> so when we have um, superiority conceit, it really blo- there's tons of delusion in it, and usually we can't see it. I mean, that's the nature of delusion, that you can't see it. So, there, so we're really, there's a lot of blindness in superiority conceit. And so because there's a lot of blindness, it shuts down our ability to grow and our ability to care. It kind of keeps us um, shielded and closed-minded. So if we meditate, one of the great things about meditation, if we do it correctly, is we start to see um, those places um, that maybe we have projected onto other people. We start to see them within ourselves. If you sit long enough, you see a lot, don't you? (laughs) The good, the bad, the ugly, (laughs) all of it. And then um, close friends, close friends, uh, partners, close relationships, great for this stuff. Hopefully they'll tell you if we're lucky. Spiritual friendship. Hopefully our spiritual friends like, um, will help us to see the delusion, the places that we hide. I want to distinguish um, superiority conceit from a healthy appreciation of our growth and our strengths. And you can tell the difference. With um, superiority conceit, there's a there's contraction around it. With a healthy appreciation of our strengths and our growth, it's open-hearted. You don't feel that same closedness of the heart. And it can be really um, supportive to our growth and our practice to recognize our strengths, to recognize places that we've changed and grown. It gives us self-respect, self-confidence. That can be very helpful and wholesome and energizing for practice. So that's different. And you can feel it by how the heart feels. I, After I teach a retreat, I generally take some time to... Um, rest in the fact that I have just done something that's good. And it's not a superiority conceit. It's that appreciation of just that I've done something good in the world. And it feels um, very, there's a contentment and a satisfaction with that kind of appreciating ourselves when we do something good. So I was doing that a little bit this afternoon, just enjoying having done something that helps others. So what do we do? Um, how, how do we deal with mana or conceit? So first of all, it's just mindfulness, looking out for it, naming it. And if you have a lot of that lesser than variety, which we'll talk about, like I'm not as good as others, not good enough, really prevalent kind of um, conditioning, 
see if you if the other one pops up. The other one's easy. Superior superiority conceit is hard to deal with because of the delusion because you can't see it. But it's easier to break the um, conditioning than it is to break the conditioning that I'm worse than. That one sent, that one tends to really um really tenacious. The last retreat I did, I was I was working on this talk before I went on the retreat, and I was thinking about it because I was going to give it um, for the first time when I got back from this retreat that I was on. And um, so one time I noticed that I was, this was when I was in Asia and Burma in January, and we all eat at the same time. So we go to the dining room together, we chant before we eat, and then we all eat together. So whoever leaves the dining room first, it's kind of obvious they eat the, the quickest. And, <laughs> and on retreat, you know, you're encouraged to be mindful and eat a little more slowly. Um, so it wasn't uncommon for me to leave lunch towards the earlier uh, aside. So one time I was leaving lunch first. And they all know that I, all the people knew that I was a, a Dharma teacher, so, you know, pressure, pressure. Um, so I, I, I left the dining hall, and I noticed that I thought, oh, they're going to think that I'm a... Um, that I wasn't mindful, that I didn't eat mindful. So I got a little, you know, protective right of my, of my ego. <laughs> and um, so then I watched my mind, and it was interesting. I went from, oh, they're going to think I'm not mindful. And the next thought was like, well, I'm actually better than them because they're all afraid to leave the dining room. <laughs> Because it's a long afternoon. You don't get dinner in Burma, right? So once you leave the lunchroom, it's like, woo, long view, you know, until the end of the day. So it was just so funny. to See, that's how, like, the superiority conceit works. Like, we think maybe we're less than. Oh, my God, we're worried we're less than. So we come up with a story that, like, conveniently works for us. <laughs> and I thought it was funny, just like you guys did. That's good, you know. It was like, oh, God, look at that. That is so funny. And um, if we can start relating to it that way, right, rather than, oh, my God, look at me. I'm so bad because I, I, I think I'm better than them or whatever. No, that, that just, that's just more of the same, right? The other flip side, I'm not good enough. But it's just like, oh, there it is. And sometimes it can be helpful just to recognize the impermanence of whatever we're identifying with. So one, name it, mindfulness of it. Sometimes the Buddha, I believe it was the Buddha, talked about the arrogance of youth, right? Or the arrogance of health. Like, um, if, we, if we identify strongly with being healthy and like we're a healthy person, we're great because we're a healthy person, that can just change in a day or a minute, right? Youth, youth is going to change anyway. If we're identified with being young, well, I can report from... <laughs> The other side of 50 that, you know, you, you go uphill and you go downhill. <laughs> what goes up must come down. <laughs> and the third thing that's important um, with mana, and especially I find it important with superiority conceit. With inferiority conceit, we have to be careful not to get sucked down into it. But with superiority conceit is to feel the pain of it. Because we generally think that feeling better than other people, generally, if you asked other, most people in society if that's a pleasant feeling, they would say yes. But check it out. 
is it actually pleasant? And um, what we find is that if we look closely is that it, it's not, that it's actually a contracted, there's a contracted sense of heart and mind. That there's a narrowing and a separation and that it's painful. And if we see it's painful, that will help us to um, let it go. It's like on this retreat, we were just teaching, my uh, co-teacher Chaz was talking about, like, if, if the hand's on the stove and you don't feel it, you're not going to take it off. But if the hand's on the hot stove and you feel the pain, you're going to take the hand off, right? So it's like if we feel the pain of the superiority conceit, um, it just isn't as much fun as it used to be. <laughs> when you don't feel the pain of it, like, yeah, let her rip, right? But, but when you feel the pain of it, then it's like, wow, I don't know if I really want to do that. So I want to talk a little bit. I'm talking about like personal feeling of uh, superiority, but there's also um, cultural feelings of superiority that um, are pretty intense. So one of the ways that this can manifest is um, what's called internalized racial superiority, feeling that because of your race, you are um, better than others or being conditioned to feel that because of your race, you're um, better than others. So in this way, like a whole group of people feels like they and their values are superior to other groups of people. And of course, there's an immense amount of um, suffering that comes with this. So, um, yeah, I was thinking about a little bit during the talk. Let me, put, let me get that later. Let me go back to this. So um, in this country, obviously, uh, the white northern European culture and values are um, dominant, right? The dominant culture. So uh, white people can often have a sense of internalized racial superiority that we're better than people of other races. But as I said earlier, we might not see it. We very well might not see it because there's so much delusion present when um, there's superiority conceit. It's, it can be so hidden. But, for example, we may think that the values of our culture, like the values of white northern European culture, hard work, punctuality, independence, individualism, and competition, we might think that those are um, superior values. Or we take for granted that those are superior values. We don't even stop to think about it. When there's um, internalized racial superiority, yeah, it's, you don't even think about it. And so we might then, but what then happens with this is that um, other values get um, pushed aside and identified with other cultures, and then we don't have as much access to them. So it limits who we are, internalized racial superiority lim limits who we are on top of the, the um, obvious other suffering it causes. So I was at, um, in June, I, I teach a retreat I've, for the last two years, and we hope it will continue until I train enough Latino teachers to make myself unneeded, <laughs> which is my goal. <laughs> but I teach uh, a retreat in, in Spanish, and... Um, uh, 
California in June. So most of the people who are there are Latinos. And it was very interesting. The cook, a white woman, she, um, she was, she, her mind was kind of blown by the difference with having Latino um, volunteers in the kitchen versus usually having white, mostly white folks. Or, well, I know when you talk about Latinos, Latinos can be white. and White, non-Latino um, uh, participants. And she said, wow, with this group, she said, they all cut the vegetables the same size without talking about it. She said, with the usual, you know, the white non-Latino folks, she said they all have their own ideas about how the vegetables should be cut, and they all insist on cutting it their way. Isn't that interesting? She was, like, so, so happy. She was, <laughs> she was like, I want, I want these folks in my kitchen all the time. <laughs> um, So what happens when we identify with the values of individualism as the highest value? What do we lose? We lose cooperation. We lose flexibility. We lose an ability to t- attune with the group. And then the other, one of the other problems with internalized racial superiority is that if one race is, is identifying as um, uh, dominant and superior, that means others are inferior. So then there's internalized racial inferiority that gets learned through this whole pattern, which is highly, obviously, highly painful and um, unhelpful. <laughs> So related to this, um, there's internalized class superiority. Again, if we're of the dominant group, we're not going to see that. So um, a number of years ago, when in my early 30s, I, uh, I worked in the inner city in Holyoke, Massachusetts. I worked um, as a psychotherapist, mostly with Puerto Ricans because I speak Spanish. And um, a poor neighborhood, a community mental health center, and um, yeah, so lots of inner city problems. And I took this job as a, well, a t- I don't know if you guys know this term, but WHWP. It's, it's a phrase sometimes used, I think. Um, I like to think it's an affectionate phrase, but it's probably more one of frustration. It's a well-meaning white people. <laughs> WHWP, well-meaning white people. So it's folks um, like I was back then, um, White folks, generally middle class or um, upper middle class, who go into situations um, like the inner city or um, poor, poor neighborhoods, um, bringing their values and not aware that um, they're doing that. And, and basically bring, bringing some sense of um, class or race superiority without knowing it. And so when I started working in the inner city, um, I encouraged my clients in my values. So I encouraged them, you know, my middle class, upper middle class values. So I encouraged them in, you know, strong limit setting, delayed gratification, save your money for things you might want, um, you know, don't let people run over you. Um, I didn't understand 
that those were middle class values. I had no sense of that. I just thought they were the way, the best, the way you should be, right? So blindness, remember the blindness that I'm talking about. In fact, I was like, well, why aren't they listening to me? And <laughs> this was kind of, you know, a little, it was 20 years ago, that's, over 20 years ago, that's, oh, that's my, what I try to say in my defense, but um, it took me a while to really like pay attention and start to understand that my values weren't better, that my values worked for um, if you have money, um, if you have backups, if, um, it, that it was very economically determined. So for example, if you have very rigid limit setting with other people when you're poor, when you fall into a crisis, all those people you set limits with are not going to be so interested in helping you. So you lose your housing, and you've been super rigid about not letting anybody stay with you, for example. You lose your housing, you're not going to have anywhere to go. So if you're middle class and you have lots of money, you might not need to worry about that. But if, if it's a different situation if you don't have a lot of money. Oh, for example, delayed gratification. What I started to realize with the people I worked with that if you're poor and you delay gratification, the likelihood is that a crisis will arrive and the resources will go for that and the gratification will never come. So it doesn't make sense. It makes more sense to get your gratification when you can because otherwise you're not going to get it. I'm glad to report that after a couple of years, well, I'm chagrined that it took so long, but I did start to um, see what I was doing, and I started to actually listen to my clients and to support them um, and trust that they, that they knew what they were doing, actually. And um, it worked much better. They were very patient with me. <laughs> We had a good relationship. Generally, I had a good relationship with them, even though I was doing this thing. They were just patient. <laughs> and then I'm never going to get, wow, it's going to get late, isn't it? I'm already on the first one still. But there's so much to say. Then I was thinking, too, in the talk about nationalism and how like, that's a form of um, superiority conceit. And like the Nazis had it, too, like way right to perfection that um, nationalistic superiority conceit. Um, but we're, we Americans are pretty good at it, too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you asked, if they took a poll in America, like how many people think this is the best country in the world, I bet it would be over 50% easy. Yeah. I mean, I think that all countries, you know, are pretty much have good people and have people who cause trouble and have beauty and have, you know, <laughs> they all have, <laughs> how can you compare them? It's just, you know, we're all different. But I think most Americans would say that, you know, we're the best. And then out of that, again, it's like we try to impose our values. Like we're going to, you know, make sure the rest of the world knows, follows what we think are the best values as Americans. So it's very, it's, you can see this conditioning is dangerous and very um, destructive. 
So it's good if we can start naming it at home in ourselves, but often we need help because there's so much delusion that we often need um, somebody who can point it out to us. That's why a lot of us white folks, we need like, we need some training or help or whatever to see internalized racial superiority because otherwise we're blind to it. All right, let's move on. <laughs> so the flip side, feeling less than. They're really the same coin, just flip side, right? Um, most of us are familiar with this uh, kind of, it it's, seems to be uh, an epidemic. It's that feeling that we're worse than, we're not as good as, we don't measure up to others. And the inner critic and the inner judge is part of it, right? This one's more obviously painful when we're feeling in, um, this kind of um, inferiority conceit, as they would call it in Buddhism. We know it's not so pleasant. We don't tend to think of it as a kind of conceit, but it is because of the strong sense of self that we build with it. And we can see that it also, in the same way, creates a strong story about myself. And it can sometimes be helpful if, if we struggle with this feeling to name it this way. It's a, you know, mana or conceit or just to understand. I mean, we tend to really get mired in this stuff, right? The, like, I'm not good enough. I don't uh, compare. I don't par- I'm not up to par. <laughs> Everybody else here can sit, you know, more still than me or longer or... So in this way, kind of both feeling better than and um, feeling worse than have that sense of um, imprisonment in a sense of self. So again, the, the task is to be mindful of it. And if you've been mindful of superiority conceit, it'll be easier to be mindful of inferiority conceit because you'll already have... Um, started to learn not to identify so much with these stories. There's so much that can be said about this. I'm wondering how much I can how much time I have to get into it. With inferiority conceit, we we have to get to know this conditioning very deeply, but we try to do it in a way that um, we don't get um, lost or sucked into it. Because sometimes the inner critic, that version of it, can be super, super intense. I was telling somebody on this retreat last week, I was like, if you get, like some people, like if the inner critic says, oh, you're, you know, you're no good at this, and then we argue with the inner critic, have you ever done this? Like, no, actually, I am pretty good at it. And the inner critic's like, no, not, no chance. If you argue with the inner critic, it'll always win. Have you ever, ever beat the inner critic in an argument? <laughs> so <laughs> it's super, super smart <laughs> and slick, right? It's amazing. Like what it can come up to. Every single argument you have, it can come up with one, you know, to put you down again, to, to kind of go for that inferiority thing. Um, so, so definitely trying to convince it doesn't seem to work. I mean, what I've found works 
Well, what some people find helpful is, first of all, just to set limits with that. When you notice that kind of inferiority conceit, just to say, no, we're not going there. Like sometimes you just have to be firm. No, we're not going there. Actually, the inner critic doesn't, he'll try, it'll try to get back in, but, he, but that's not an argument, so he, that actually works better. <laughs> so it's like, no, we're not going there. But eventually we have to um, develop a sense of compassion with that, with, with the pain of that. And um, eventually we have to soften with it. But only when we're sure it won't take us over. That's why we need to know first how to say, no, I won't go there. And then we learn how to um, have a relationship with it. I spent so many years um, investigating this kind of conditioning. And eventually, I could have a conversation with this conditioning. And basically, that inner critic would just say, I'm just trying to help you. And, and he is. He's just misguided. You know? He's like, I'm going to keep you small so that nobody will hurt you. Nobody will see you. It's back to the tribes. Have you ever seen those tribes of the, um, of the monkeys, right? Like some of the monkeys, they, like, they stay out of the way of the alpha monkeys, and they just kind of stay like in their place so they won't get hurt. So, so the, you know, they, they stay small. And so the inner critic is like, I'm just trying to help you. I'm just trying to protect you. Why are you trying to get rid of me? That's what the inner critic thinks. The inner critic thinks that you're deluded. Like, why are you trying to get rid of me? I've been your, I've supported you all these years, protected you. So that's just like putting words on a process. But Basically, when we start to understand that, that this is a protective kind of conditioning, we, we can have less aversion to it. And then when we have less aversion to it, it starts to, um, then we identify less with it, and it, and, and it um, doesn't cause us so much suffering. So after many years of working with this conditioning, it can still come up for me, but um, mostly it can't really dig in. It's just like, oh, there are those thoughts. And then what I notice is that they come up usually when I'm feeling vulnerable. And, uh, and, and so I just, I, what I'll say when I'll hear those thoughts about, you know, oh, you shouldn't have said that, you did that, whatever, you know, all the form. Just like, oh, I'm feeling vulnerable right now. And then when I can be with that vulnerability, it's, it's okay. It's okay. And the inner critic, can, he kind of quiets down and takes a little nap. So then the last conditioning is equal to. And so we might wonder, what's wrong with that? Like, isn't that what we want? Um, the challenge with that is that it's still comparing. <laughs> it's still creating a sense of self, some story about self, um, in relationship to other people. So it might not have that obvious sense of suffering that can come with superiority or inferiority conceit, but it contains the seeds of separation. And the other thing I was thinking about, so with um, this equal conceit, equality conceit, 
it's possible when we're looking at others as equal to ourselves that we're not really being authentic. That we're valuing, that we're not, um, that we're trying to figure out what others value or we're looking at what others value um, and what others think rather than truly trusting ourselves. So obviously there's some place in like what others think. <laughs> I mean, there's, you know, we are social creatures, right? But, but um, I think of practice as helping us to become more and more authentic with who and what we are, are more and more authentically ourselves. So practice helps us to settle more and more deeply into the truth of our own unique life. And as we come back to our own experience over and over again, we learn to trust it. And as we learn to trust it just as it is, that it's not better than or less than or equal to others, but it just is. It is what's happening. Um, we find uh, peace from, from mana. <laughs> We're just our own crazy, idiosyncratic, beautiful selves. I think that this um, less concern about ourselves and our placement with others leads to the growth of the quality um, we call humility. And um, that word, I think we have to be careful with it sometimes because for some people it's too close to humiliation. <laughs> and we're not talking about humiliation. That's different. So maybe humbleness might work better for some people than humility. But it's that... Um, quality of uh, a quality of great freedom where there's a kind of beginner's mind and a kind of authenticity um, that isn't worried about our placement and our measuring ourselves against others and and it's a very receptive kind of quality being humble it means that we're willing to receive feedback we're willing to grow we don't feel that we have to defend some sense of self Sometimes we think of um, humility as less than. Uh, no, it's not that. It's not better than, less than, or equal to. It's like stepping out of that game entirely, stepping out of that paradigm. Thomas Merton uh, said, Finally, I am coming to the conclusion that my highest ambition is to be what I already am. My highest ambition is to be what I already am. <laughs> That's a kind of humility. And humility is great, too, because we, um, we are freed of this pressure to be extraordinary. That's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of work. Another, um, the poet Ryo Khan from, from Japan from, I think, I don't know if it's 1700s, 1800s. He's one of my favorite um, poets. The, he was a hermit poet. He kind of wandered through the mountains, and uh, that's mainly what he did, I think. He wrote, uh, uh, here's a little poem from him. Today's begging is finished. At the crossroads, I wandered by the side of the Buddhist shrine, talking with some children. Last year, a foolish monk 
This year, no change. <laughs> it's, um, it's so pure <laughs> and so humble and so accepting, right? No stress in there. In the Catholic tradition, they talk a lot about humility. It's, and uh, I think we can learn something from our Catholic brothers and sisters. Here was one from a, a great book called um, Eyes Wide Open, Developing Discernment on the Spiritual Path by Mariana Kaplan. She says, I have a friend I used to live with in South Africa who at 75, and after 40 years of spiritual practice, still explores the principle of um, projections. Sometimes when I would come home and ask her how her day had been, she would say, oh, it was a good day. I had some strong reactions to people, and that was a divine's way of saying to me, Gillian, you still have more work to do. (laughs) I like that. Oh, it was a good day. (laughs) I had some reactions to people. (laughs) There's humility there, right? There's not a need to defend, just a, a wish to learn. That's what's so beautiful about humility. We're willing to learn. So with um, humility, we can see that also that it's very related to authenticity, just a willingness to be as one is. And um, I think when I think of some of the spiritual, the folks that I've known that are kind of really deep, um, there's a sense of this kind of both uh, humility and um, authenticity that can really display itself in a beautiful way. You get the sense that they don't really, they're not too concerned with how they measure up for you, right? I'm thinking of um, when I go to Burma, every other year I usually go, there's a monk we called the happy monk because he's really the happiest person we ever knew. He just died um, last November, I think, at 99 years old. And we would go visit him because he was so happy, and just really just to sit with him for five or ten minutes was a great experience. And one time my co-teacher Greg said to him, um, you know, I have to give a talk about Donna. Would you say some words on Donna? And he started in. He said, everything in here is from Donna. These oranges, and he started throwing oranges at Greg, like, these oranges, this is Donna, and this is Donna, and everything here is Donna. And there's a way that he was like, so authentic and kind of outrageous. It was really refreshing. <laughs> he was always like that. <laughs> when we let go of conceit, of comparing ourselves with others, there's a lot of freedom in the heart and mind to be authentically just as we are. And that authenticity can really shine forth as a gift in this world. I think maybe it would be a good time to stop, so if you have any questions, there will be time for them. But before that, let's just sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash
Donate.